Healthcare Today is produced and paid for by the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to WDEV at RadioVermont.com. Healthcare Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, a weekly exploration of health and wellness topics affecting Vermonters. Brought to you in part by Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Age Well Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. Northfieldpharmacy.com. And Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee owned and locally committed. Your participation is encouraged. Call with your questions, 244-1777 or 877-291-8255. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Lewis Myers, and this is Healthcare Today. We're going to be talking today about chronic pain, which unfortunately affects so many people. It is pain which lasts more than two weeks, sometimes for months or even years. Many, It, it affects not only the quality of life of people who suffer from chronic pain, but also can increase their risk of mortality. Many patients with chronic pain have also struggled with dependence on opioid medications and have been affected by recent restrictions on the prescription of these treatments. We have two guests today. I'm very honored to have them both here because I think they approach pain from one from a research perspective and the other from a uh, clinical perspective. Dr. Tor Wager is at Dartmouth-Hitchcock Medical Center, where he is a distinguished professor of psychological and brain sciences. He was previously a professor at University of Colorado and started his career as an associate professor at Columbia University in New York City. Previous to that, he had his undergraduate degree in music from Illinois, and he did get his Ph.D. in psychology from the University of Michigan. We're going to start with him today and uh, follow with Dr. Scott Morani, who's on the uh, phone with us from Massachusetts, uh, and I'll introduce Dr. Morani more extensively in a moment. But uh, Dr. Wager, welcome to the show. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Let me just ask you this. When you started your career in, in psychology, um, did you initially have a focus on, on the research into pain, or how did that develop? I didn't start off studying pain. I started off studying brain imaging and the control of attention and learning. Uh, but it turned out that pain is a really fascinating thing to study because it affects so many of our lives. Is it extensively studied in the field of psychology or is this getting more attention now as we've seen the problems, of course, with the opioid uh, issues? I always saw pain as a very specialized universe in its own in, in, in research coming from different approaches, pharmacology, uh, medicine, physiology, psychology. Um, but now I think with the ability to image the living human brain and study more intensively what's happening in the person's brain and body, it's becoming multidisciplinary. So people like me who are interested in neuroscience uh, can get into pain research from, from different angles. And how did you start? Where, where did you start in your research? What, what were some of the things you were looking at when you, such a big com, complex area of pain, it's, you know, that can encompass so many things. How did you start? My first love in the research, and it still is, is to understand how what we think 
controls how our body responds and what we feel and, and our physiology. So my first entree into pain was studying placebo effects, which is the effect of getting nothing from a pharmacological standpoint, but it's a, it's a window into how people's perceptions and beliefs and expectations about the context of treatment can impact their brain physiology. And in, when I reviewed some of the literature and the studies you've done, that does seem to be an area where you've had extensive uh, work, and that is with placebos. Talk to us a little bit more about placebos. It's, it's uh, certainly in the clinical field, it's somewhat controversial, uh, but but in the research field, it's it's commonly used uh, using placebos in in, very, in studies. Um, tell us a little more about what are placebos. Clinically speaking, a placebo is a sham treatment, so it has no pharmacological or physical effects. But the interesting part of placebos is that every drug and every treatment is given in a context, and that context is the place where you get it, the feeling of warmth and caring that, that you get from the, the physician, uh, the, the look in her eyes or the... Um, uh, the cues that you get, the, you know, the fear of the injection, etc. So all of those things together can form powerful memories that can do things for us like increase opioids in the brain, which are the brain's natural morphine-like chemicals, uh, so to speak, and uh, change the way the, pain, the brain constructs the experience of pain and responds to painful events in the body. We've heard about this, I think they're called endorphins, that our own body and our own brains make. Um, uh, people who, who, for example, are runners uh, often talk about the endorphins they experience and, and certainly many other situations. Talk. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of exogenous, which is outside the body endorphins, versus endogenous, which is inside the body? Right. Well, there are, are many exogenous opioids that are familiar to many of us now, right? morphine, hydromorphone, oxycontin, and various uh, flavors. Um, well, the, the reason that those things work is that the brain has receptors for them. And the reason that it has receptors for them is because they have a function and the brain makes its own uh, chemicals. So enkephalins, for example, um, is, is one class, and beta-endorphin and dynorphin. Uh, and the, the reason, broadly speaking, that we have those systems is to to generate uh, motivation, hopes and fears, desires uh, and pleasures, uh, as, as well as um, shape the way our body responds to things like pain or thirst or being in a fight based on what you what you know and believe and perceive about the situation. So, so they're part of the machinery that the brain has for translating the situation into a, a, an optimal response for that situation. I'm going to ask you another follow-up question, but let me let our listeners know that you're part of this show too, and we'd like to hear from you if you have suffered from chronic pain or know someone who is or simply have a question about what the guests are talking about. We're at 802-244-1777. Again, that's 802 244 one seven seven seven. So, Dr. Wager, let me ask you a sort of a uh, an extreme example of this. You see, sometimes people walking on fire. They're in their bare feet. They'll have these rituals where they walk across hot coals, and they don't seem to be feeling pain, even though potentially their feet are being burned. 
Is that what we mean by endorphins or what's happening there? Um, that's probably part of it. You know, the pharmacology of firewalking is still remains to be uh, discovered in large part, but absolutely. So the brain has a powerful capacity to turn pain up or down, and it can do so in part via producing uh, endogenous opioids, chemicals, and as a whole host of, of different chemicals in the brain can help make that happen. So when you've done studies where you used a placebo, which is basically also known, for example, as a sugar pill or a sham procedure um, versus the active treatment with, with other modalities, including medications, what are some of the things? You, tell us about some of those studies and what you found. Right. So what we've found is that if you if you simply get a treatment, a cream on your skin, let's say, that is, um, you believe it's going to help you feel less pain, um, then that can cause the release of opioids in some of the centers, the ancient centers, essentially in the brainstem that produce these these chemicals, uh, and in the prefrontal cortex, it uh, helps us to interpret events and to feel emotions and uh, construct a, a sense of our where we are. So it can, can release endogenous opioids, it can release dopamine, it can improve symptoms and brain signals related to the symptoms in Parkinson's disease, it can change the way your brain processes painful heat on your body, let's say, so like a hot, you know, hot stimulus or, or painful pressure on your body. Um, so the, and it can also, um, it, it can do so in part by changing the way your, your brain constructs those experiences and in part by even reaching back down to the spinal cord where the pain signals are coming up and changing their response. It can turn down the gain, so to speak, of the, the painful input from the body. Um, and on the other side, you can turn it up as well, right? If you get, if you're very afraid, if you, if you induce people to think they're getting a drug that's going to make the pain worse, you can cause the release of stress hormones and increase those signals. We've seen some of this anticipatory uh, situations and it doesn't necessarily involve pain, but it, for example, it involves nausea in the field of oncology where they've learned years ago that if people expect that they're going to have nausea and vomiting after their chemotherapy, they're actually more likely to experience it. Uh, it doesn't work. It's not a hundred percent slam dunk on that, but they've found ways to try and re-educate people about what, what to expect. How important is that when, if you go into a procedure or if you're taking medication, how important that is, is that to have a realistic sense of what may happen, uh, versus perhaps a, frankly, sugar-coated version? Well, I think that's a key point. And the, the critical thing about what you said is, with nausea, is that the brain is constantly predicting what's going to happen. It doesn't respond to what did happen. It responds to what it thinks is going to happen and, and what the need is. So I think the question that you raised is a complex one. You know, uh, physicians and caregivers have an obligation to be honest with their patients and to, to you know, tell them realistically what's going to happen. People need to make their own decisions uh, based on that. However, um, it's also the case that some patients and some physicians are um, – well, they, they can, you know, you can choose to be more optimistic or more pessimistic about what's going to happen, right, and what your, your chances are. And so the problem is that we know that if people come in, let's say, to surgery 
with uh, a lot of anxiety, a lot of depression, and a lot of fear that something is going to go wrong for them and something bad is going to happen, uh, then those are known risk factors for poor outcomes for chronic pain after surgery. So, so having, uh, you know, you, it's important to get it right, having an, uh, an overly vigilant and overly um, anxious attitude can actually be harmful. We should say that placebos are certainly accepted in clinical studies or in research studies where people who are entering the study are know ahead of time that they may get a placebo versus the active treatment. It's been much more controversial, of course, in the field of clinical medicine. We'll talk to Dr. Marani about that perhaps a little bit later. But, you know, uh, giving a patient a placebo without their awareness is, is generally considered a no-no, even if you think it might work. Right. We use placebos to study how the brain constructs experiences and how it can turn pain and, and other symptoms up and down. But we don't think that people should get placebos clinically, especially not deceptively. Um, what I think is happening is that the things that you tap into when you give a person a placebo are things that you can do for a person without deceiving them. So they're the same kinds of processes that uh, come into play when a person receives social support uh, and care from, from a loved one or feels confidence in a physician that, that they understand them and they're hearing them and that, and that they're going to they're gonna do the right thing for them. So that confidence is the same thing that we're tapping into um, when we give people placebos. So you don't need to deceive people. What we can do is study... The, the, the systems themselves study the, the ways in which people already give support and care and, uh, and, and psychological treatment. So trust and caring is important. As, as we've known for a long time in, in clinical settings, um, I don't know to what extent you've studied opioid dependency, but people who do use opioid medications or use um, street drugs, uh, which in, include opioids, um, what is happening in their brain? Well, there are a number of things that can happen with people after they take opioids for some time that are unfortunate. I don't think they're very widely known. Um, so several things. One is that taking an opioid can increase inflammation. Uh, can increase inflammation in the spinal cord in ways that promote pain in, in research studies. Um, it can cause sensitization of the neurons in the spinal cord that carry pain-related information to the brain. Um, and uh, it can also cause various changes in the brain itself that uh, can make a person more sensitive to pain and less sensitive to reward. Um, so it, we know clinically uh, a big risk factor of being on opioids for more than a couple months is um, depression uh, and Anhedonia, which means lack of feeling pleasure, um, and then you know the the inability to return to work, and so, so all of these things go together. Um, and the way I think about it is, if you get an exogenous opioid, a drug, your brain is flooded with this new chemical. Well, your brain is a finely tuned machine; it's it's in balance, and it says, "Wow, there's all this crazy." stuff happening, and, and maybe you feel great, maybe you don't, <laughs> you know, it depends. But um, let's say you feel really great, uh, but the same thing 
you're down-regulating the systems that make you feel great because your brain's saying, oh, I better, I better ramp that down. I've got too much of this, this, this opioids. I'm going to become less sensitive. So then what happens is you end up feeling a little bit worse and a little bit worse over time. Then you just feel bad all the time. And then when you take the drug, you feel normal again. So you've gone from the high, an opioid high to opioids just making you feel normal and you're feeling really bad without them. And that's why I think they're so addictive. It actually changes the chemistry of the brain. It's, yeah, it changes the way your brain can, it responds to natural opioids and it can make it less sensitive to the very chemicals that give you pleasure and reward and motivation. Let me ask you this, and this may be outside the scope of the work you've done, but there are some new approaches to treating depression, and a Veterans Administration is, is looking at these and, and other institutions. They involve things like using um, LSD or what are called magic mushrooms. These are sort of mind-altering substances which they have found in initial studies may uh, affect people's uh, – help relieve some of their depression, but certainly – there, would there be concern about brain chemistry in, in using some of these treatments? Well, that's a fascinating question. And this whole set of new studies is, is really we're just at the beginning of starting this kind of work with uh, psychedelics coming back into the research you know, world. Um, and I think one, one might always worry about that. But in this particular case, um, I'm not as worried about desensitization because I think what, uh, I mean, what, what these psychedelics do, we're still learning a lot about. But one idea is that a really important thing for your experience of pain and depression and anxiety and other symptoms is your mindset. It's what you believe about uh, the world and about yourself, you know, and what you believe about your future. And people get locked into all kinds of mindsets. And one way to think about what depression is, is being locked into a negative mindset. What taking a low dose of LSD is, it's not a feel-good chemical. It's a chemical that shakes up that mindset. So it might just simply break this essentially brain habit, break you out of that, and allow you to relearn something new, to re-experience yourself in the world in a different way. So, so I'm not so worried about desensitization uh, of pleasure systems, you know. So that that's the domain of opioids. But LSD, I think, is quite a different uh, beast. People who are chronically depressed talk about it feels like physical pain, and sometimes it's hard for them to differentiate between the physical pain they're feeling and the depression. Can you talk a little bit about that? Is there a connection between depression actually causing physical pain? There, there seems to be a connection at multiple levels. You can see it in epidemiology and in clinical studies where early depression leads to later pain and vice versa. Um, there are overlaps in the brain in some of the systems like those that are really the, 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 the reward centers of the brain, if you will, the nucleus accumbens. Um, and I think that the, the connection is that uh, your brain's making decisions about whether to essentially be more enthusiastic and engaged about going out and exploring the world, taking risks, experiencing things, or withdrawing, protecting, defending. And you can, in a way, you can think about um, pain and depression as being similar signals. They're both signals that you should withdraw and protect. 
And what you see with both of those is changes in these reward systems, in the, in the structure of neurons in these reward systems that are the sort of uh, pulling back of the dendrites um, and remodeling and in a way that, that promotes essentially a more negative and pessimistic outlook. Now, now that, with pain, you know, that might be adaptive in the short term. If you have an acute injury, this is perhaps a protective mechanism. Um, but uh, long-term, of course, once the, an injury is healed, this becomes maladaptive. We have a caller, Rich from uh, Starksboro. Uh, Rich, you're on the line. Hello. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, I have a kind of a couple of questions for, for your guest. Um, I'd like to uh, try geminal neuralgia. My understanding of try geminal neuralgia that, that uh, opioids won't really touch it for reducing the pain. And the, the go-to drugs are uh, anti-seizure medication. But I'd like to know what his thoughts are on whether placebos type of things can can have an effect on that. And I'd also like to know what he what he what he knows about uh, uh, CBD uh, topically and both uh, orally and uh, medical marijuana. Those, those are excellent questions, Rich. I appreciate that. And I should also mention, um, Dr. Waker, you were. Uh, written up in the New York Times recently, which is how I came across your work, uh, looking at some alternative pain uh, pathways or neuronal pathways. But let's look at trigeminal neuralgia, which is a terrible situation for people who've had it. Uh, certainly are well all too aware of that. Um, what is that, and, and what about uh, what Rich says uh, asks about opioids? Yeah, I mean, so that's a great question, Rich. Thank you. And people think that opioids work for pain, but they don't work for most pain for most people, especially not long-term. So it might work on the order of hours, but then you engage this process of increasing sensitization. So what happens with opioids often is that you start off on a low dose, feeling a certain amount of pain, and then you escalate the dose as it stops working until you can get a dose that's 40 times higher than the original dose. If you just took that dose, it would kill you. But, um, But then you're feeling the same pain. Um, because your system has has adapted, um, and so right, so um, other kinds of drugs like uh, those related to um, GABA are are sort of one of the the potentially promising um, avenues for treatment. Uh, and I, I will say it's it's not that um, you asked about placebos. You know, it's it's not you can get placebo effects in trigeminal neuralgia pain. Um, it's it's not that something is either caused physiologically by inflammation and so on, or it's you know all in the brain and placebos only work on the latter. It's it's a combination. So you can have real um, neuropathic mechanisms, uh, you know, changes in in nerves, changes in, in in inflammatory mediators that really are drivers of pain. And on top of that, your brain is interpreting that signal and, and essentially amplifying it and making it worse or minimizing it and, and making it better. And the placebo operates on the latter part, but they both coexist um, in the brain. We're going to talk about maybe CBD uh, uh, treatments with uh, Dr. Morani after the break. But let me, before we go to the break, let me ask you about, you mentioned at the top some of the imaging work you're doing. Uh, which is fascinating, and it's helping you actually visualize what's happening in the brain in ways that we never could before. Tell us about that and what you're learning. 
Well, we've we spent about the last 10 years developing biomarkers in the brain, which is, is there a brain system or systems that respond consistently in individual people in a way that we can look at the brain and uh, understand, essentially predict how much pain somebody's feeling. Um, and we're, we're, we're not doing this to replace people's pain reports. We're doing this because we need to measure the brain systems that create pain, and we need to understand why a particular person has pain. So which changes in the brain are, are mediating that, are creating that, that pain? Um, what we've, we've found is that for different types of uh, pains that you'd get that you can control experimentally, you know, heat, sh- pressure, shock, um, other things like that, um, there's a very consistent response, a very prototypical brain system that, that tracks the pain coming from those things. And that is susceptible. There's a small effect of placebo in that system. It's larger for some people than others. And it's also influenced by other kinds of, of uh, practices. So, for example, if you receive support from a loved one holding your hand, that brain system is reduced in activity. Or if you do a brief training and adopt, essentially it's a, it's a mindfulness practice that, that we teach people, um, then it can reduce activity in that system. I think so these really are called, aiming. I'm sorry, these are called functional MRIs. Just in the last minute we have before the break, do yeah. you see, obviously right now they're almost in t- solely in the research field, but do you see these being able to use clinically? Um, we'll see. I think they're they're expensive and they're difficult to to analyze the data. Um, but what I think we could see is these being used in clinical trials to understand how things that you can measure clinically map onto brain systems, and which kinds of treatments target the brain in powerful ways, and which ones don't, and then using that to design better treatments. So it's not that every person will get a functional MRI to track their pain. You know, we just know that they're in pain, but we can, we can use MRI to get a better diagnostic picture of what's causing pain. Well, the work you're doing is fascinating. Uh, it's, it's a uh, cutting edge, groundbreaking work. And we thank you. Um, I know that you're at work. You may have to move on, but certainly we would, if you can stay on with us for the second half of the show, uh, we would welcome that. And otherwise, we want to thank you for being here. We'll be back after the break to talk to Dr. Scott Morani. I'm going to introduce now Dr. Scott Morani, who's been waiting patiently. Um, Dr. Morani is on the phone with us from Massachusetts. He got his MD degree from his native Philippines. He did his residency training in physical medicine and rehabilitation at the Wayne State University uh, College of Medicine in Detroit. Uh, and he is board certified in physical medicine rehabilitation with subspecialty board certification in pain medicine. Currently works at, I believe, at two community health centers in Massachusetts. Dr. Marani, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, our listeners may not be familiar with what PMR or physical medicine rehabilitation is. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the training uh, that goes into that and, and into your specialty? Absolutely. So physical medicine and rehabilitation is a medical specialty. So before one can take the specialty, they have to graduate from a medical school, get an MD or a DO degree, and then pursue a four-year residency program on the specialty. 
The first year is usually a general internship in family practice or internal medicine, and then three years of actual rehabilitation medicine. And quite simply, the goal of rehab medicine is to improve and restore functional ability for those with physical impairments and disabilities, for example, affecting the brain, the spinal cord, the nerves, the tendons, the bones. And it's unlike other specialties in the sense that other specialties tend to emphasize cure, whereas rehab medicine's goal is really just to maximize function and quality of life. And um, I also have a subspecialty in pain medicine, and it would be fair to say that perhaps about 90% of my patients have some form of pain. And that in itself is another subspecialty, so you have to take a subspecialty examination. And in the last 15 years, you have to have had a uh, fellowship or additional training in pain management. As you listen to Dr. Wager in the first half of the uh, hour talking about some of the basic uh, science and clinical science of uh, pain, any other thoughts uh, you've had on what we've been talking about thus far? Yes, uh, and my comment is on the placebo effect. Um, I, in some respects, use the placebo effects not to deceive people but to help I try to put things in a positive light. So a good example of that is if I'm going to be giving a patient a medicine, such as an anti-inflammatory medicine, um, I like to phrase it in a very positive way. I don't just say, okay, I'm going to give you this prescription. I'm going to say, I'm going to give you this prescription, which has helped a lot of my patients deal with their pain. In other words, I use a very positive affect and positive encouragement that tends to in my opinion, make them look at it more optimistically. And you're not lying about um, this, right? You actually have had p- many patients who have who have done well with it. Yes, I have had patients that do well with these medicines. And, of course, I don't say it for all medications, but I certainly will say it for some medications. And when it comes to injection therapy, so my practice focuses a lot on muscle and tendon injuries, but mostly spinal problems, is I also mentioned that if I'm going to be doing some kind of injection, for example, for back pain, I also like to I like to uh, start off with a very positive note of how this can help a lot of people. So it's sort of using a little bit of psychology to have the patient uh, have good results and have better expectations. The, uh, you know, I know from my own experience in, in, in primary care that many primary care providers are, are faced with when they have patients who have chronic pain, um, don't have the training, uh, in their programs. That may be changing since it's been quite a while since I've been out of residency and I, I would hope that's changing, but we didn't get much training in, in terms of how to treat people who are truly in, in pain and chronic pain. Uh, and I think that's true for many other specialties. So, uh, but unfortunately, people such as yourself who are trained in this are few and far between. So it's often yeah. left to the primary care providers. Do you work with the primary pr- care providers in terms of either educating them or uh, teaming up with them? And tell us a little bit about that. So uh, perhaps 10 years ago, 10 to 20 years ago, it was more collaborative. 
In other words, when a physician would send me a patient with chronic pain, it was truly a consult. In other words, I wasn't expected to take over the patient's management necessarily. I would perhaps try to work with the patient, maybe refer them for some treatment, physical therapy, or maybe injection therapy. And once the patient was stabilized, I would have the patient go back to their uh, internist or family practice physician to continue to maintain the patient. And I would discuss this with the patient and have the patient, uh, primary care provider send the patient back to me, let's say twice a year, just to kind of co-manage the patient. But unfortunately, what is happening, at least in the last five years, is there's not a lot of communication happening. It's everybody's sort of working in their silos. And that's quite unfortunate. So, and also the, the, Treatment now has been, if a patient is sent to me by their internist for, let's say, chronic back pain, the expectation is that I will essentially take over that. And whether it's medications or injections, I'm supposed to take care of that patient almost for life, which I think is um, not a great thing because I think too many specialties involved in the care of a patient can contribute to all kinds of problems. We're going to be talking about primary care in a uh... I think January, uh, January 14th. But one of the things that's happened in primary care is that primary care providers, and I'm sure the listeners know this, seem overwhelmed and with, uh, with work at this point. And taking care of a patient with chronic pain takes time. And I think what we've heard yeah. from Dr. Wager and what we're hearing from you is that you really have to build trust and a sense of teamwork with your patient. And that takes time. And yeah. if, Primary care providers don't have the time. They they are all too glad to send people off to someone who might have a bit more time to spend with the patient. I agree with you. I my condolences to uh, my colleagues who practice primary care these days because there's just too many regulations going on, too much too much bureaucracy that they don't have time enough. They don't have enough time with their patients, not just for pain, but for many other problems. Well. Tell us, if you could, a couple of examples of patients, and obviously won't, won't be using names or, or other specific identifying characteristics, but t- give us an example of a couple of patients that may have been challenging uh, and where you really had to sort of sit with them and think about what would be the best approach and best solution for them. Yes, absolutely. So um, a very good example I can think of right now is a a 75-year-old woman that I treat who has had two knee replacements, and she was sent to me because of back pain that she's had for 10 years, and it seems that she was not getting any better with medications. And uh, so when I saw her, I did a history. I asked her what medication she had been taking and what treatment she's had aside from medications. And when I examined her, I found her to be quite depressed, had a lot of limitations in her mobility. She walked with a cane. She had a lot of uh, discomfort in her lower back, and um, she tended to slouch forward. And when I uh, sent her for additional testing, particularly an MRI of her back and an X-ray of her hip, because I did find some hip tenderness, uh, I determined that she did have some new problems in her back, particularly a herniated disc. And she also had a lot of lumbar or back arthritis. In terms of her hip, she also had moderate arthritis of her hip. 
So, you know, all of these were combining to some abnormal movement patterns and causing her to slouch forward, feel unsteady, have a lot. And she was also developing a lot of what we call myofascial pain or tightness in the muscles. And that's just developed over years due to maladaptive patterns. So my treatment approach for her was to discuss the medications that would best serve her and send her for some physical therapy to help try to correct some of the movement patterns that she was that she had developed over the years, a lot of stretching and strengthening exercises. And um, when I saw her for a follow-up, we found that she did improve with therapy, but she was still in considerable pain in her back. And what I opted to do at that time was recommend injection therapy for her spine, particularly an epidural. In terms of depression, we had a long conversation of that. She was already on an antidepressant since her father or rather her husband had died a few years ago. Uh, we did discuss cognitive, uh, emotional therapy or psychological therapy, which she unfortunately declined on. Um, the reason depression is relevant, as we know, as our previous speaker had said, it is very much tied in with the chronic pain experience. Um, I do also want to mention I'd like to check the vitamin D levels of a lot of uh, my patients, especially in this area where we have we don't get enough sunlight in New England. A lot of our older patients are vitamin D deficient, especially now with COVID. Nobody goes out. And low vitamin D can enhance pain. So we, I try to address that as well. I, I, one of our uh, rich who called earlier was asking about, and this is something of a non sequitur, but he was asking about CBD oils or even oral uh, CBD, uh, which is yes. uh, s- certainly you know legally available now, where it was not maybe 20 years ago. Um, what have been your experience with that? Um, to be quite honest, not great, and that's because CBD or cannabidiol is a supplement. It's considered a supplement, so it is not followed by the Food and Drug Administration. So it's uh, it's just the preparation of CBD goes all over the place. You can buy them all over the place. You can buy them in Amazon. You can even buy them in a gas station. And so it's not tightly regulated. So I worry when patients tell me that they use CBD here and CBD there. I mean, more power if it if it's helping their pain. I don't care if it's the placebo effect. But I am concerned of, of impurities. I'm concerned about adulterants in the preparation and I tell this to all my patients who take supplements is that at least pay the $50 and join Consumer Labs. Uh, it's a website where they do their own independent testing for adulterants and impurities in supplements, whether it's vitamins or melatonin or CBD. It's a great website, and I have no professional connection with them. What, what is, is the website again, I, just so people will know? Yes, it's consumerlabs.com. Okay. Let me ask you this. Uh, there are instances where someone has been, perhaps has chronic back pain, which has just been unrelenting or other pain. They've been on a stable dose of opioid medicines. They, you know, they've been monitored. They haven't been abusing them. Uh, it yeah. seems to help them function, whether they're at work or function in other areas of their life. And they've been on it for years. Um, with the new regulations and with the new attention about opioid 
dependents, a lot of physicians, particularly in primary care, are leery about continuing these kind of medications. And I have seen patients whose lives were then disrupted because they were rather abruptly taken off their their opioids that they had been using for years. What can you say about that? Are there people that benefit if they're on a stable dose from simply remaining on that? Um, My general feeling about chronic opioids is that right now, the way my practice has shifted is when I have a patient with acute pain, I try to shorten their exposure to opiates. In other words, I might make it for a couple of weeks for the acute pain. And I'm trying to, as much as possible, not start a a pain patient on long-term opiates. Now, the patients I had that have already been on opiates for 20 years, 30 years, especially geriatric patients, as long as I monitor them closely, I don't go sleepless worrying about them. Again, I'm very, very selective. I monitor them very closely. I do random drug testing. I see them on a regular basis, anywhere from every three to four months. And I check their labs. I make, I follow what they're doing from other physicians. We have a prescription monitoring program. So I am not as worried about it as perhaps some those in, in primary care. Um, I get more worried with patients who have high risk for opiate abuse. What are some so, of those risks? Um, those with a history of pre-adolescent sexual uh, um, trauma, those with a history of psychiatric problems, particularly schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, um, a family history of alcoholism or addiction, um, usually the age of between 19 and 45, I tend to worry more. And I use a tool in my clinic called the opioid risk tool, ORT. It's five questions, and it's a form that, you know, your nurse or even you can just give to the patient to say, okay, I'm going to start you on opiates, or you've been on opiates for a while. Why don't you fill this out? And it's there's a number. It's a number score, and it will tell you whether the patient is at mild, moderate, or high risk for opiate abuse. It's a simple screening test that is very usable in the clinical setting. And that's what I do to help my comfort level too. If my patient is on a high risk level, I tend to be very, very careful on not keeping them on opiates. So you're really saying that you individualize treatment rather than have a sort of across the board policy. Yes. I I do not. I, I remember all the, information we're getting from government institutions, the CDC, and our individual states are guidelines. And so I try not to be so black and white about it. I do try to just individualize care, and I do all the regular, all the necessary paperwork to ensure that I'm not breaking any laws. There is um, musculoskeletal injuries and and pain, and then there is some neuropathic pain, which in some ways yeah. I think is even more difficult to treat. Rich again touched on that. He mentioned trigeminal neuralgia. There's something called complex regional pain syndrome, uh, and other such, uh, uh, issues. Um, is that more, is that more difficult to treat? And how do you approach a chronic neuropathic or nerve pain? Well, um, Yes. When someone has a neuropathic type of pain, whether it's, for example, from a complex regional pain syndrome, which is caused by some kind of nerve damage, 
uh, in the extremity, or somebody has, for example, a stroke and has pain in the hemiplegic limb or hemi or the weak arm. That, that's what we call central pain. And what I tend to do with those cases is I like to use certain types of medications, specifically antidepressants and seizure-like uh, seizure medications such as gabapentin, because these target the pathways that affect nerve pain. And um, I also try to encourage physical therapy to keep movement going, depending on what part is involved. If they have RSD or complex regional pain syndrome, it's very important for them to keep moving the extremity. Um, I'm also a big fan of a device called a TENS unit, which is a transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulator. It looks like a pager that you have in your belt, and it's attached to a, a patch in your the area of pain. And it delivers an electrical sensation, which helps to close some of those pain pathways. Uh, I'm a big supporter of, cog of psychology and cognitive behavioral therapy, but one problem I have to say is this depends where you're practicing because where I'm practicing, which is a, a private practice setting, we don't have a lot of pain psychologists. So in many academic centers, these might be available, but in many private practice areas, you don't have an abundance of pain psychologists. Let me ask you this, and I apologize. I think I said earlier you're working in a community health center. But in some yeah. of our community health centers and other uh, areas of the country, there are people from other countries who now live in the United States, other cultures they grew up in. Is there an interculture, a, a difference between cultures and how people experience and or express pain? Uh, absolutely. There have been studies showing that different cultures have different ways of expressing pain. And a, a good example of this would be many uh, in Southeast Asia are very are stoic when it comes to the expression of pain. So they may not necessarily have the behavioral manifestations, the wincing, the trembling, and the crying, for example, that perhaps in the West somebody in severe pain might manifest. So it can be very tricky. And also they may not have if they're not particularly proficient in English, if they go to the emergency room, they may not have the ability to articulate how painful it is or how or the characteristics of the pain. If it's burning, if it's aching, if it's it, here where I practice in Massachusetts, we have a very large Portuguese community. In fact, it's one of the largest Portuguese communities outside of Portugal. And we have some uh, senior citizens, Portuguese uh, senior citizens who do not speak English, and it is more challenging to treat them because of this communication issue. We're get, we just have a couple minutes left, but you were listening to uh, Dr. Wager as, as well. Um, both of you are, are, you know, laser focused on helping uh, people with pain. Dr. Wager through his research and you through your clinical work. Is there communication between the clinicians and the basic scientists who are doing this research? The opportunities for that communication happen in academia. So if, for example, if I was practicing in, uh, in Dartmouth College or Dartmouth University where uh, 
Dr. Wagner was practicing, we would definitely be collaborating. The opportunities I have as a clinician who is in private practice comes through conferences. So when I go to a conference, I have more opportunities to talk to them, share experiences, and even collaborate. So um, it really depends on your practice setting, whether you're in private practice or you're in an academic environment. Well, I think, you know, one uh, reflection is that this is one of the last or among the last uncharted territories that we have so much to learn about what causes pain and how to treat it, that as a medical profession, uh, we need to use all of our resources, uh, including primary care. We need to be talking to each other, as, as you said. Um, and we want to give as much hope as we can to people who are in pain because it, it's just a tragic thing when people have to live with pain. But what I'm hearing is some hopeful developments both in the lab and in the, uh, in the clinic. And I want to thank you both. Dr. Scott Morani, Dr. Tor Wager. Thank you. Thank you. And I would like to announce we will not be here on this show next week, the day before, uh, Christmas or uh, New Year's Eve day on the 31st. I will be back on the 7th. Until then, please be kind to yourselves, be kind to others, and I hope you have a great Christmas holiday. Today with Dr. Lewis Myers, brought to you in part by AgeWell Vermont, the leading experts and advocates for older adults in northwestern Vermont. Westview Meadows and the Gary Residence, retirement living the way it's meant to be. Kinney Drugs and KinneyDrugs.com, employee owned and locally committed. Northfield Pharmacy, pharmacy care with a personalized hometown touch. NorthfieldPharmacy.com. The music for this program was written and produced by Armin Bayajan.